Jeremiah's image of God was robust and multidimensional, and it gives his faith a vitality that was necessary to sustain him through many, many difficulties and trials that he faced throughout the 40 years that he was ministering God's word to Israel. So the question this morning is, what is your picture of God? Because how you see God, how you imagine God, how you visualize God for yourself affects the way that you live, affects your faith. And to picture God, we tend to use metaphor. Uh, metaphor, a metaphor is something that we take language from one part of life to apply it to another so that we use words that is describing um, one thing to describe another thing because we understand it. It helps us to comprehend. Jesus did this a lot. And if we take just one example in Matthew 13, he says just variously through that chapter that the kingdom of heaven is like, and he, and he likens it to something else that was common for them at that stage. And it could be many things, but he says it's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, or it's like a pearl of great price. And towards the end of chapter 13 in Matthew, he says it's like a net. So he's using language that, or images that were clear and unequivocal for the people who were listening. And he applies it to something else. Now, you have to use your imagination. The kingdom of heaven is not a net. It is not a pearl. But it is like that. And there's part of that that transfers. And so we begin to see immediately the connections of what Jesus is saying. Now, back to your picture of God. How do you picture God? How do you imagine him to be? Now, some of the standard ways are things that we all as a, have as a baseline in terms of our understanding of God. God as Father, God as Creator, God who um, loves us and provides for us. And those images are important in terms of establishing who we are. And they tend to become dominant in the way that we imagine God and understand Him. And that's fine, that's good, it's right. But when that becomes static, when it becomes the way that we see God and that's uh, the, the door is closed to other ways of seeing and experiencing him, then God essentially becomes domesticated. And by that I mean he is no longer the wild, untamed, free God that he actually is. And we bring him into the walls of our lives and we close him down. We squeeze God into our mold of our understanding of him. And we make him safe for us. We, it might not be going too far to say that it becomes idolatrous in the sense that we then don't have any capacity to see beyond that. Now, I want us to, this morning, have a quick look at Jeremiah's prayer life. Because um, there was a vitality in his prayer life and his knowledge and understanding of God that is evident through his prayers, that is uh, important, I think, for us to, to grasp. And one of the interesting things is that Jeremiah's prayer life with God is essentially combative. He is adversarial with God. And God actually speaks plainly and in the same way back to him on so many occasions. 
the prayers are eloquent, but they are often abrasive. They are often quite um, difficult to read. Anything but serene, as somebody once said. There's disappointment. Jeremiah expresses his uh, upset and his being forlorn and even uh, without reservation his hostility to God. Much the same as we've looked in the past at some of the Psalms that come through that express the whole range of our experience of life to God um, in that way. And this robustness of response to God is evident in, in the way that Jeremiah prays. And there's, there's rich metaphor here, and I want to just stop and have a look at a few of them. In chapter 2 alone, in verse 2, Jeremiah talks about God as the bridegroom who's now been abandoned. In the 13th verse of chapter 2, he talks about God as a fountain of living water. Now, I will say that one of the things that we tend to do is we latch on to one or two of these uh, more positive, if you like, uh, images. Um, but these, there's a range of stuff. So thirdly, in chapter 2, Jeremiah talks of God and shows God as, a, um, as better than bridal oin uh, um, ornaments. Wedding feasts were um, rich and um, festive occasions, obviously, in the ancient world as today. But he says that God is even better than all the many ornaments that you could possibly do at a wedding. Uh, but then in chapter 3, the very next chapter, he talks of God as a wounded and betrayed father. We're talking about God here. His understanding of God as a wounded and betrayed father in verse 19, chapter 3. In chapter 5, verse 6, in one verse, he described God as a lion, a wolf, and a leopard. It's worth going and having a look at some of these things. Just a couple more. In chapter 5 also, he describes God as a civil engineer who made boundaries along the sea so that it didn't overflow all the land. Uh, he's talked of as a man with heart trouble in chapter 8, verse 18. And then the one that we did look at and which is really well known in chapter 18 is that God is a potter. Now, Paul clearly picks up um, in chapter 15 of Romans uh, the, the kind of uh, intense sense of God's uh, relationship with Jeremiah in his own prayer life. In chapter 15, verse 30 in Romans, Paul talks about, uh, uh, he, he talks to the Roman church and urges them to strive together with him in his prayers. And he's, you know, I think the more modern translation would use the word struggle with God in prayer. That there is a, um, there is more than just the um, subservient acquiescence of Christians to God. We are able to grapple with what's going on and going on around us in such a way that there is a robustness. It actually lends vitality to the way that we actually live. And one of the commentators has said that predictable language is a measure of a deadened relationship. Let me say that again. Predictable language, predictability in the under, a way we understand God is a measure of how our relationship becomes deadened. Now, you could apply that to your um, ordinary daily relationships, but when it comes to God, if we are not um, uh, understanding God and learning new things about how God is and who He is, if our language is not vital, then our relationship 
will become flattened and domesticated. And we lose that sense of the unpredictability and the wildness, the freedom of God. And Jeremiah was saying to Israel through his own prayer life and in the way there that he presented God's message that God was, um, in a sense, dangerously on the move through this unsettled period of history, this political and economic upheaval, the exile, the way that the Egyptians and the um, Babylonians were creating such a hostile environment, that God is on the move, but it is not predictable and it is not easy. And here's one of the ways that Jeremiah actually sees God. And I think it's helpful for us to just stop here for a minute because it opens the door for us to explore. I want to suggest to you that God is an unsettling God. God unsettles us. Part of the way he works with us and part of what he does to us and for us is to unsettle us. Now, step back. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah's life and we looked at um, the concept of a life of faith versus a life of certainty or control. Our gravitation towards security and certainty, uh, the way we easily trade um, our, um, uh, the unpredictability of life so that we can have everything measured and organized and that there's not anything that disturbs it. And we looked at Abraham and how Abraham had moved from Ur and Haran. He'd had a huge pilgrimage from miles away. And yet he still found himself slipping back, wanting the predictability of uh, life in Egypt. Or we looked briefly at, at Israel as God uh, releases them and sets them free to a life with him. But it entails following him and leaning on him in the desert with a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. It demands that you trust God for your food, the manna and the quail, and for your water, for your dailiness. And how they longed for the, the settled predictability of Egypt, for the leeks and the onions of Egypt. And how when, Ab uh, when Moses sorry, was away from them for some time, they, they gravitate towards making an image, a golden calf, which was in, a, in, in, in um, their minds the way that the Egyptians had always done it. Or there's Israel, who when they settled into the land, after a period of time, the judges wanting to take one of their individuals and make them king, they in a sense re uh, rejected God as their sovereign. They didn't want to live by faith. They wanted the predictability, the certainty, the clarity, the... Um, they didn't want to be unsettled. And then throughout the history of Israel with the kings, there's good kings and bad kings. And even when it gets to David and Solomon, there are treaties that are being made with all kinds of different people. They didn't want God as sovereign. They wanted something more certain, predictable, something more plain and easy. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 1 verse at chapter 11, verse 1, how faith is what we, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And how it goes on to say that God can only be pleased. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. 
God is only pleased with us when we live in that profoundly trusting relationship where he is our supplier, where he is our uh, sovereign, the one we listen to and go to. We tend to build all kinds of walls. Abraham was a pilgrim, an exile, um, an alien, and it talks about it in verse 13, 14, and 15 of Hebrews about the early uh, children of Abraham and the whole family, that they were strangers on the earth. They weren't settlers. They weren't settled in one particular place. They were not permanent. They were aware of the fact that their lives and all that they were, all, everything that they were, was, was in total reliance in God and on God. They were always moving. They were always moving forward, always moving on. And so when we tend to settle down, when we want to build walls, when we want to make sure that we have everything neat and secure and tidy, that there is nothing that will um, mess with our way of seeing life or understanding who God is, then God comes along and unsettles us. He tilts our world. He turns it on its head. He's an unsettling God. And it's not that he does that because it's arbitrary and he just has great fun doing it. It's not because it's unnecessary. Um, it's only when we have withdrawn away and have become so settled that we no longer are living by faith. And God comes and, and disturbs our world so that we will be constantly on the move, trusting God, and that our faith, our life will be vital and maturing. I want to give you two examples from Jeremiah, and the one is a, uh, a very powerful image. Uh, we looked at one of our meditations, this verse in chapter 48, it's two verses in fact, chapter 48 in Jeremiah, verses 11 and 12, and it's how uh, Jeremiah is speaking God's word to Moab, and he says this, Moab has been at rest from youth, like wine left on its dregs, not poured from one jar to another. She has gone, not gone into exile. She does not taste as she did. Her aroma is unchanged. But the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send men who pour from jars, and they will pour her out, and they will empty her jars and smash her jugs. It's a very powerful winemaking image. And the whole point is this, that Israel begins to, or um, Moab begins to understand because they understand how wine was made. So the grapes were harvested, they were pressed. The juices were put in these jars, these huge jugs, amphora, and they were left to stand. And they fermented. And in the process, the sediment would float to the bottom and create a sludge called the dregs at the bottom, the lees. Now, the idea was that you would then take the jar very carefully and you would pour out the wine that was there into another jar, leaving the lees or the dregs at the bottom. And you would do this on a couple of occasions and each time the sediment would settle 
and your wine would be better and purer because what happened was if you just left it in the one jug and they all settled to the bottom, those lees, those dregs, would then pollute the wine. And it would be, I don't know, vinegar, undrinkable. But what God says to Moab is, you've settled down, you've become so domesticated, you're so safe, you think you've got everything under control. But you haven't been poured from one jar to the other. So there is no purifying. You have sat for so long in one place. And I'm not talking about geographic when I'm talking about you and I. I'm not talking about geography. I'm talking about in our lives. We've sat so long in one place that we become polluted. And God says to Moab, I'm going to take you and I'll pour you from one jar. And there's someone who's going to come along and pour you from one jar to another. Now, that unsettling, that pouring, that being tilted over, if you like, comes in a variety of different ways. But the point I'm making is this. That's the image that uh, Jeremiah applies to Moab. He understands that God is a God who is unsettling, that God will come and pour you from one thing to another. The idea is not that it's arbitrary or unnecessary. It's because if we stay stagnant in one place for a great length of time, we become polluted. We need to be moved forward. We are, we, we're at we're exiles, aliens, strangers, pilgrims in a foreign land. We've got to keep moving forward. And so the image that is applied here is that, that God is the one who tilts and tips, who unsettles. Not just to have fun, but so that we have a life of vital faith and energy. Something that is really worthwhile and growing. That's the one image. The other image is in the next chapter, in Jeremiah uh, 49. And he's now talking to the Edomites. And in verse 16, he talks to them about the fact that they may think that they have built themselves uh, like an eagle's eyrie and that nothing can touch them. They're safe. And God says, don't think you're safe. Don't think that you can get to a place where you have built something around you that makes you um, in, uh, invulnerable to some of life's vicissitudes and difficulties because you will find that I'm the one who comes and tears you down, who unsettles you. Now, the Im imagery that is being used here of the eagle with his eyrie is um, fresh in the minds of Jeremiah and of all the people uh, in the region, because at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry with Josiah's reform, it's called the Deuteronomic reform of Josiah, because in the temple, as they begin to clean out, they find the law and they begin to read the law out. And um, the image comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, where uh, chapter 31 and 32, is an, it's, it's a marvelous um, a section of passages from the end of Moses's life where God speaks to Moses and he says to Moses do you know what I want you to do a big paraphrase here he says I want you to write this song and then I want you to teach this song to Israel so that they sing the song and they understand exactly who I am so you get where this thing falls and fits Israel 
was taught this song. And this image that Jeremiah uses of the eagle comes out of the song of Moses that Moses taught Israel that God showed him that they would be able to understand what kind of a God that they had. And so I read to you from verse 11 in um, uh, Deuteronomy 32. Where are we? It says here, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on his pinions. It's just one verse in there, but there is, there is this powerful image that Jeremiah invokes from Deuteronomy. And he's reminding them that this is what the eagle does. The eagle, when the little eaglets are just starting to grow up and they are comfortable in the nest, when they're little, it's fine, there's space. But as they grow and the mother and father feed them and they, they get bigger and bigger, the nest obviously isn't the place that they were designed for. They were designed to fly. They were designed to expand their wings and move. And as these chicks have become used to being cared for and fed, that God is their provider and that he is the father and it's all very cozy and lovely, there comes a moment when the parents know it's time for them to fly. And so what they do is they disturb the nest. They start breaking it up. And if necessary, they kick the chicks. These eaglets get kicked off the ledge and they fall. And I, you, know, you can go and read up the whole imagery is, is, is very powerful. But as, the, as they fall, as they fear what's going on, they begin to, for the first time, use their wings for what they were designed for. Now, it takes some faith to fly for the first time, unless you have a mother or a father who will just kick you out and help you. And as they fall, if they don't get it right, the parent swoops down and, and carries them, and the process goes until they learn to fly. I don't know how many times it's happened in your life. It's happened plenty in my life, and I've watched it with other people. And generally, we, we try and... Um, deflect and we have all ways of trying to describe what's happening in our lives. But I want to posit to you this morning that one of the things that's happening is that it's God himself who unsettles us. It's he who comes and chucks us out of the nest where we've built walls, where we've settled, where we've got comfortable using uh, our uh, food that has come to us that we've been provided and life is cozy but that's what that's not what we were designed for we were designed to fly we were designed we are pilgrims we are exiles we are strangers moving towards a heavenly city this is not where we are rooted and God will unsettle us he will come and disturb us he will tilt your world so that you have to, like those in the desert as they left Egypt, as they were learning on their way as pilgrims to the, the land of promise, that, that God fed them, that he directed him. They had to trust him implicitly, explicitly, because they were in a desert. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
And often we've built our worlds into such a place where we don't really need God's help. We've organized ourselves so that we are quite self-reliant. Uh, we are independent of everyone else and of God. Well, that's not how he sees the picture. And I think what Jeremiah does for us with all the metaphors, with the images that he has, this combative kind of language that he uses in his prayers, he restores to us an understanding that God is, is rich, free, wild, different, deeper, more than we can even ask or imagine. And I think that uh, the way that our faith is revitalized is if we understand once again that God will not just let us settle down on the lees. He doesn't want our lives to become ordinary and polluted. He doesn't want us to just become fat chicks in the nest. He wants us to spread our wings and to become uh, all that we can possibly be and live a life of fruitfulness and vitality. And part of that is that we begin to understand in new and fresh ways actually who God is. And so I want to ask you again today, how do you picture God? What is your image of God? Because it will affect the way that you live.